Hey, you here? Are you here? <laughs> Indeed you is. And this is your announcer speaking. Nice guy that I am, I am here to welcome you to the Paul Leslie Hour. You know, for 19 years, this show has a vast collection of interviews with many people. Lots of musicians, recording artists, and what have you. Your host, Paul, is recovering from a sunburn, scorched epidermis. Uh, you know, the lobster look. Maybe he missed the memo about applying sunscreen at regular intervals. Well, you don't always have to apply it. Sometimes you can just eat it. Brush your teeth with it. We've got an interview from the archives today with a drummer, a percussionist, and record producer of great renown, Alan Schwarzberg. Mm-hmm. Alan is spelled with two L's, two A's, and closes out with a very soft consonant. In this interview, legendary drummer, producer, Alan Schwartzberg of Deep Diner Studio in New York talks about his experience as a professional musician, working with people like Peter Gabriel, James Brown, Yoko Ono, just to name a few. Alan, spelled with two A's, two L's, and a soft consonant, also is honed in on the project he produced with Regis and Joy Philbin. Oh, one other announcement here before we really get going. Here at the show, we appreciate every like. We love every share. We adore every comment. But one really big deal is every contribution. Simply visit www.thepaulleslie.com slash support and you can give yourself and others the gift of stories. Now, we thank you. Hey, we need you. Okay, Alan Schwartzberg, two A's, two L's, soft consonant. We love this guy. And you will, too. So you're in New York. Yep. My whole life. What part of New York are you in right now? I've been living in Brooklyn for about 42 years. 42 years. Moved move from the city, 57th Street, uh, to Brooklyn. And uh, very happy I did. The man we're talking with is Alan Schwartzberg. He's a musician, a drummer, a record producer. It's a great pleasure to welcome you here. It's my pleasure, Paul. Thank you. Thanks for asking. So, it's a New York story. <laughs> Are your parents from New York? Uh, yeah, yeah. Born and raised in the Bronx, early years in the Bronx. Moved to Queens and moved to the then mo I moved to the city. Moved out of my parents' house, moved into uh, into Manhattan, where my, uh, just before moving, my mother told me, uh, if anybody offers you a cigarette, don't take it. That's, I don't know how that popped into my head, but it did. Then my wife and I moved to Brooklyn when the children were, were coming. We thought we'd raise them in a nice, a little nicer environment rather than the concrete and, you know, concrete and smog. So we've been in Brooklyn for over 42 years. Tell us about the music that you most identified with when you were growing up. 
It was jazz, and it was mainly drumming. I was walking to school one day in, in the days when you could actually like have an eight- or nine-year-old walk by himself to school without worrying, and I heard a drummer playing kind of like a cozy, cold Gene Krupa style, you know, that kind of stuff, and uh, I froze. I remember freezing it in my tracks and saying, what the hell is that? And uh, I just went went home and tried to do it, duplicate it on the washing machine and dryer, you know, banging on different sides of the uh, of the appliance to get different sounds and pots and pans and wooden spoons. And that was my introduction. That was my introduction to kind of to music. My parents loved music. Uh, they weren't musicians, but they were great dancers and uh, jitterbuggers. I, I got I got a love for music from them, and then I just fell in love with jazz mainly. I, that's what I wanted to be, a jazz musician. And I set my sights on that, then realized that uh, I enjoyed living indoors, so I uh, better find something else to do. So I, I developed a love for R&B, and blues and rock and roll and uh, got into doing uh, recording work, mainly recording work after playing live for many years and then very much enjoyed doing that. And that was, and I was lucky enough to be in the, I guess in the heyday of recording. I had, we had a lot of, my friends and I had a lot of great years as studio musicians doing all kinds of projects. Was it hard to break into that studio work? It is. It is very hard. I just followed my instincts. I I got called to do some sessions because people were liking my jazz playing. Because jazz, a jazz musician is kind of like the height of... of uh, kind of virtuosity if you could if you could play jazz and you could pretty you, you would think you could pretty much play anything it turns out not to be true but anyway what i would do is on every recording session i would go into uh into the control room and, and listen back and musicians some of the older jazz uh, the older studio guys weren't doing that they didn't care they would look at their watch and think about the next session, and and they would just say, "Hey, sounds great. Let's go. You know, let me out of here. I want to get to the next session." I didn't. I cared. I cared about what the drum sounded like, and and I had suggestions, and I found myself as uh, one of the really first calls, what they call, what's referred to as first call studio musicians. I maintained that ethic you know, throughout the years, it just of, of just caring what my part sounded like on, on the record. And, and, and also never, never holding back my two cents. If I felt that I got something had to be said, which often was the case. When you were doing these sessions, what producer impressed you the most? One producer that pressed me the most without a doubt was a guy named Bob Ezrin, who I went on to work with, with Peter Gabriel and uh, 
Alice Cooper and Kiss, a lot of people. Bob Ezrin was the ultimate record producer. He could conceive the record. He could engineer the record. I saw him jump when the engineer got sick on an Alice Cooper session. I saw him engineer, set the, set the, uh, set the recorder, come into the studio and walk around to each instrument and play each one to show the guys what he was hearing. So he got, he got behind the drums. He said, I'm hearing this kind of beat and would play killer beat. Get on the, get on the, get on the bass, play, play a bass line. Try something like this. Guitar, everything. And then he would eventually sit at the piano and do the reference vocal and play piano on the take. I don't think any record producer before or after him could do some, could do something like that. I don't know. I, I, maybe John Legend or maybe, uh, Babyface or one of the, uh, Maybe one of the new uh, cutting edge producers can. I, I've never, I've never experienced anybody do do that, and that made an amazing impression on me. There's so many artists that you have played music with. I mean, if you look at the different sessions that you did, James Brown, Judy Collins, Jimi Hendrix, as as you mentioned, Kiss, Alice Cooper. Peter Gabriel. I mean, we could just go on and on and on. Was there one that if you had to if you had to pick one to represent what you could do that you would you would basically put in your portfolio first? Paul, you know what uh believe it or not, I mean, we I did a beautiful album with with Peter Gabriel, uh his first solo album after leaving Genesis. But and and I was proud, proud of my playing. I, I hated the mix that they ended up with. I was I was I don't know why they why it ended up that way because it sounded great in the studio. But something happens sometimes when it gets to when it gets to the street and it gets to be in record form. But I'm most proud of, believe it or not, I think uh, I would have to say that my my drum track on. James Brown's Funky President, which went on to become the sample beat on 72 hit records. To this day, when I meet, when I meet uh, a programmer, like a, uh, I think you know what I mean by a programmer, a, a synth guy that, that does a lot of uh, hip hop and R&B stuff, which is most, which many times is, uh, is just uh, programmed in synth, synth synths and computers and uh when i meet that when i meet those guys they they know their history and when i tell them i'm i was the drummer on funky president i get a whole different treatment from them (laughs) (laughs) and and i and i look back at it and uh actually i'm amazed i'm amazed at how great james brown how great he was because that track wasn't wasn't that wasn't that great, but when he sang on top of it, he pulled it all. To, he just knitted it, knitted it all together, and it became killer. And uh, that's one of my favorite sessions. His drummers were playing uh, playing some percussion. I don't know if it ended up on that particular track, 
but they were in a booth playing percussion and I was playing drums, little white Jewish guy playing drums. I was, I was very happy to hear the engineer told me years later, he said, you know that, you know, James, James really liked you, you're playing. In fact, he quote, he said, let's get that Jew boy back because he couldn't remember my last name. <laughs> a little, little hard to remember. And then I ran into him, and and he was great. I ran into him. I told him I was the drummer, by the way. On uh, I was with Paul Schaefer at uh, at a hard rock club, and we were hanging with James. And uh, I told him I was the drummer on Funky President, and he was beautiful. He was great. Incredible, incredible uh, force, music force. You also played on the John Lennon and Yoko Ono album, Milk and Honey. <laughs> I have a good story about Yoko. All right. If you want to hear it. <laughs> My friend Jimmy Mellon, the percussionist, was contracting a session for Yoko. He had somehow managed never to hear Yoko sing or whatever you call that, that she does. So we all gather together at the session, waiting for Yoko to arrive. She arrives late, of course. And we're all sitting at the instruments, ready to go. And she comes into the room, and she's got a piece of paper, and she says, okay, uh, B-flat, and now we, I, I, you play eight bars, and then I come in, I sing. Okay, just B flat chord, and uh, okay, one chord. We you know we pretty much know what we're going to be doing, so we start vamping. And don't forget Jimmy Jimmy Malin. Jimmy Malin, I should have said, is in the center of the studio with baffles around him, because he was he's the contractor, and I guess he wanted to be able to see everybody at once. And anyway, so he's in the middle playing conga drums, and so she's uh, we, we're playing. Like a, a groove, like do do and it's like eight bars: six, two, three, four, seven, two, three, four, eight, two. Now here she comes in. She goes, and Jimmy Malin, Jimmy Malin jumps up, thinks it's feedback, throws the earphones off, and says, "What the hell is that?" And everybody's looking at him, saying, "No." Whispering and a mouthing, sit down, keep playing. This is how this, this is how she sings, and he, you know, he had really, really like a pitiful look on his face, and he put his phones back on and sat down at the con and kept playing. But it was a moment. Uh, it was a, it was a great moment and uh, and a great review of her of her music. With that said, was there a track from that album that you? Most appreciated. You know, Paul, I I never pursued <laughs> wanting to hear it. Uh, I I don't I I don't know why. I just uh, I wasn't. I don't know. I never. I don't think I ever heard the finished finished mixes of of any of those sessions. And I played with her a couple of times. I think she was nice. I liked her, and I bet she was a genius of sorts in you know in art as as an artist. A performance artist, or uh, whatever that's called, uh, but the music thing, gee whiz, come on, you know, it's like that—that that was that was crazy. 
I don't know if I if I gave you the visual uh, descriptively enough, but if, if you could just picture the guy standing up and, <laughs> and and yelling, "What the hell is that?" And I imagine I I don't even remember looking at her face. I couldn't bear to look at her face because she was she must have seen it. And but it all happened like within seconds. Anyway, that was a that was a moment that I won't forget. How did you transition from being a session player? To being a producer yourself, it was a natural. I was I had a big mouth, and I would say things. I would see things that were going down on a session that I knew weren't right. And when a session is not going well, it's somehow the drummer. Somehow the drummer, because it doesn't feel right, and they don't know why it's not feeling right. Somehow the drummer gets 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 the heat and. I I would say I would speak up and I would just say hey could we just maybe try uh waiting uh you know let the bass come in first and maybe and after the after like coming in letter B and and let it breathe a little bit up front or something you know any I started doing it from the drums and then uh, then I had then I had ideas I ideas for conceptions for albums that I always wanted to do and then I did. Uh, in fact, one of them, one of them that we had communicated about was Regis and Joy's record, which was my idea. I thought it, I thought it was one of those on paper. How could it miss? How could this miss? There's five million people that show up every morning to listen to that TV show, watch and listen to that TV show that adore him and his wife. And his wife loves to sing and nobody's asking her to sing. And so it's like everybody wins situation. It's like not only that, we could we will make good music. He loves to sing too, Regis. He loves he loved adores singing. Dean Martin was his idol. I thought, wow, this is this on paper, this is this is gold. When we had the launch party for the C D, which was a spectacular thing because Regis was the spokesperson for TD Bank at the time and we had the flagship TD Bank on Madison and 42nd Street as the party as the party site and Trump was there I introduced Donald Trump to say a few words he's he's on the record at the party I heard I heard and saw Tony Bennett holding the album and saying Regis this is gold I'm holding gold in my hand. And uh, so did Letterman, by the way, on the Letterman show. We did a Letterman show, and Letterman said, "This I'm holding gold in my hands here. Only one thing that we never took into account was that Regis's producer, Gelm, uh, I forgot his first name, John Gelman, Gelman, I think is his name, did not allow Regis to plug the record because he wanted the music on his sh- on the show to be contemporary and because he, he wanted to draw a younger audience he was hoping to draw a younger audience and what i had planned was every day or once a week for as many weeks as it took regis would do one song from the record with joy and plug it and just hold it up and say hey guys don't forget about the album that's all we needed and he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it because it was forbidden by his producer and he didn't want to buck 
buck heads with him. We just watched it. We watched it sink into oblivion. But there, there was on paper one of the best ideas I ever had, and in an era of of people not buying CDs because they're they're buying they're downloading everything. His demographic, that audience, is a CD buying audience, and all he had to do was hold it up, and it would have been million seller. Would and we started a record label because we knew it was gonna couldn't miss. So we started our own record label called Big Dot Records. It just didn't happen. It didn't work. It's like uh, life. Life happened, you know. With that said, from that album, the the duets album of Regis and Joy, was there a track that you felt they did the best? Well, there's a track that Regis sings that I thought he sounded as good as, I'm not going to say as good as any singer, but as good as any of those, like, Singers that that are acceptable, like Fred Astaire, when Fred Astaire would make make his records, he had a he had that charm and that and his reading of the lyric, I thought was great. It was the song called "Nevertheless." Nevertheless, I'm in love with you. He did a great job on that. And Joy had some uh, some nice moments on the folks that live on the hill. She had, she sang beautifully and she's talent. She's very talented musically. She was nervous, nervous as can be, but, but she got through it. She has a nice, like a nice instrument. You know, she has a nice voice. I think they enjoyed doing it. Regis enjoyed watching Joy have a good time. It was very, it was very, they were very enjoyable sessions, as you can imagine. Regis makes Regis makes comedy out of nothing, so it doesn't matter. We put him in; it doesn't put him in anywhere. Put him in, a, you know, in front of a Korean grocer or something with no sense of humor, and he'll he'll find a way to make him laugh. He's brilliant at that, as you know. The name of your studio is Deep Diner. Yes, Deep, deep Diner. Where does music. that come from? That's a good question. The the arranger on uh, on all the projects I've done as a producer and my best friend in the world is guitarist named Bob Mann, who uh, was the arranger for all the uh, Rod Stewart, um, uh, 90% of the Rod Stewart hits, the, uh, what do you call it, the um, standards record, hit records. He does all of Steve Tyrell's arrangements, and he did... Somewhere out there, he was the arranger for somewhere out there. And I'm uh, forgetting the question, Paul. Uh, help where, me get where back. Where have you got track. the name uh, Deep Diner? The name. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. So Bob, Bob, and I grew up together, and as young young thinkers, we used to go and talk about Camus and uh, existentialism at this diner. Anytime we, we had a problem or something, Bob, meet me, meet me at the deep diner where we would go. We would go and eat, uh, eat French fries and talk deep. So we called it the deep diner. Then we named the, uh, the studio deep diner. That's what it comes from. Other people have put other, put other images to it. <laughs> you know, uh, dining deeply. You could use your own imagination. But it was it came from that. It came from us going to the diner as seventeen uh, year olds and t- 
talking about uh, Herman Hess and uh, and what's going on here on planet Earth. We're talking with musician, record producer, and drummer Alan Schwartzberg. You just mentioned the guitarist Bob Mann. And that makes me wonder, what session players do you most want to get in your studio when you're making an album? Well, what you want to do is cast. It's like a casting thing, very much like a movie casting thing. There are some great players that do certain things great and other things you would think they would, but they don't. So what you, what you do, it's a really good question. I pride myself in being like kind of a Robert Duval character actor on drums in that I could, I could speak the genre on the drums authentically and sound like a country player, sound like a real rock player because I, I played with Alice Cooper and Kiss and stuff like that and jazz. And I played with jazzers. You would cast somebody for a session if it's more ja- if it's jazzy rock and roll, there's a guy named John Colbert who I had on the Regis record who is wonderful at rock and roll and can play can play some jazz and uh, and then there's a piano player named Mike Renzi who's uh, Tony ben- been Tony Bennett's conductor and Lady Gaga working with Lady Gaga and Tony who is a stone cold jazzer and plays great, just a great accompanist. And and then there are horn players. Then there are horn players. If you need a solo, there are horn players that specialize in playing like trumpet solos and sax solos that maybe are maybe not the best music readers and section players. So you would cast them, you know, if, if whatever you need. I need a saxophone player that, that could solo and play great in a section. And then we would call we would call those people. There's uh, and you get to know them from experience, from uh, word of mouth, and that's that's kind of how this you know reputation, and that's how the studio that's how the studio scene stayed alive. It was uh, it was basically everybody's uh, collective opinion about who who did what well. Can you tell the listeners out there about anything coming up in the future? With Alan Schwartzberg. Well, I did a record. I did an album with that I love, that only Brazilians have heard because it was only released in Brazil. With B, with the singer B. J. Thomas, he did a. Uh, I had B. J. I just pictured B. J.'s voice, which is beautiful and his own. Just like Johnny Mathis has his own voice, uh, B.J. Thomas has his own voice, and Sinatra, and uh, we did a, a Brazilian album with B.J. that was just beautiful, and I think we may have another one of those things coming up where he will join forces, possibly join forces with, with one, of the, one of the big Brazilian stars. That would be great fun. Maybe do half of it in Brazil and do... Uh, do half of it in New York and have it be a uh, kind of a hybrid album. There's also a project I that's on the burn, back burner that I always wanted to get to, and that is a a duet 
with Dr. John. There's a song that I've been saving that I, I love, that I have to get to one of these days with Dr. John. I've spoke to him about it. He actually likes it. He doesn't like many songs that come from the outside. So we're making it up as we go along at this point. I think uh, there's an arranger named Charlie Colello. Do you know that name? I don't know that one. Okay, you should you should Google him. He's an arranger. He's arranged so many hit records, and he's absolutely brilliant. And we recently did a live show. It's like Charlie Colello, the hit maker. I mean, he's arranged all the Frankie Valley stuff, Neil Diamond, the Savannah Band, so many records, so many Sinatra records. Anyway, he's he's got a live show that he wants to do that uh, we've been talking about, and it might be a PBS special. We're angling for that, and uh, maybe touring, you know, touring the symphony orchestras with the Charlie Colello show. But it, just Google him, Paul, and you'll see. You'll see. He'd be a good interview too, because he, uh, yeah, you'll you'll enjoy it. He has a great memory, and uh, he's got a lot of stories. Killer stories. Great story. What is the best thing about being Alan Schwartzberg? That would be Susan Schwartzberg. Who is Susan Schwartzberg? A girl of my dreams. Wonderful. <laughs> 40, 44 years, going on 45 years, which is kind of a, a music business record. I would say, and my, you know, my children, I have two beautiful daughters, I have two wonderful grandkids, and I'm still trying to be the best Alan I could be, you know. I guess we all are. You know, I, I, that's, that's uh, I hope that answers. Does, does that answer it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. So my last question is, is very open-ended. I would just ask that you address the audience. There are all kinds of people, music fans, people who are musicians. What would you say to them? Wow. <laughs> Gee whiz. I would say uh, it depends on their in how much love they have for being, a, for being a musician. If you want to be a musician, is that what you want? Or do you want to be very musical? It's such a crazy, rough business now to break into. Very few opportunities to learn the ropes, so to speak, it's a tough road. I would, I, I would tell somebody, see if you could write, see if you could write songs. Because songs, songs never, never go away. I mean, they, they've changed in style and, uh, and in lyrics and music uh, a lot. What's considered a great song is, has, the paradigm has shifted, but... If you could do, if you could write, if you could write songs, that is a great, great way to be in to be in music. But if you love it, just just do it. Just practice and and hope hope you uh, you are you are gifted with the, with with the magic chromosome that uh, enables you to to let the music take you take you places. If not, just in, enjoy it. Just enjoy. I think amateur means uh, lover. So, 
you could you could remain an amateur and still be still be valid. But as far as the music business, I cannot I cannot get into it without without painting a dark picture. It's a it's not a business that that was that was what it was. It's no longer what it was. And it's a lot, it's a lot of, a lot of work and a lot of heartbreak and disappointment. And, uh, but if you, if you just enjoy the process, then, then enjoy it. Enjoy it, I guess, is enjoy what you're doing. That goes for anything. That's, that's an open-ended answer for your open-ended question, you know. (laughs) You asked some great questions. Oh, well, thank you. you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for the opportunity. One more thing before we go. Yeah. As the man we were talking about earlier, Regis Philbin, is going to be calling in in about a half hour. Do you have any advice for me? You you will. I think you'll have a great time. I think you're going to have a great time. <laughs> that's that's good. He is. You know, if you, if you liked him watching him on TV, that's how he is. He's just that way. I walked down the street with him many, many times. People, are, they just are drawn to him. I hope they still are. I, you know, you, you slip off the screen and then uh, your, your popularity fades. But there are people that, that love him because he's lovable. He's just a lovable guy. He loves music. He might say that I drove him crazy with uh, doing take after take, but I, I, not, a, not compared to some of the other people that produced him. <laughs> And I think we made a, and I think he agrees. We made a fantastic little keepsake for he and his wife. And it could have, it could have, should have, should have been a smash. It's unfortunate about that. But I don't, I don't know if you should dwell on uh, on the Gilman thing. You know, I, that's the yeah. truth. That is the absolute truth. But if you want to, you can go, you can go after it. But I think it might be unpleasant for him to talk about and it's it also uh i couldn't understand it because it's it has it has regis's name on the door the show has his name on the door so why can't he do whatever he wants on the show but apparently he couldn't and you know in the end the the record wasn't a hit record and it should have been it should have been a hit record not 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 because it's such it's 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 got great great songs and nobody's ever heard or great performances it's because of his audience his audience loves him as you will when when you finish talking to him and give him a kiss for me <laughs> all right i'll i'll as uh, as as they say in showbiz <laughs> i will i will I'll, okay. I'll, I'll i'll tell him what you said yeah tell him i, I said not on the lips <laughs> cheek you know definitely cheek thank Thanks, you Paul. And keep in touch. All the best, man. Likewise. Don't ever hesitate to contact. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, The Entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, 
Corina Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.